0: During the pandemic, people working on the front lines, regardless of the industry or role, face the unique challenge of having to find ways to manage their own pandemic-related fears, anxieties, and trauma, while also working to serve others during a time of extreme uncertainty. I know from personal experience that the pressure to armor up and uphold this facade of unyielding strength and resilience during times of crisis can be incredibly overwhelming. And yet, there seems to be an unspoken expectation that this is how we're supposed to behave in the name of service. As humanitarians, we work in mission-driven organizations that are working to protect vulnerable people. And yet, the cultures within these organizations are often driven by shame and a lack of safety and perpetuate the belief that we can and should be doing more. These cultures have often looked the other way as we hide parts of ourselves behind masks of perfectionism and silently engage in a game of whose trauma is worse as we compare our experiences with those of the people we serve. This expectation that humanitarians are superhuman has left many of us reluctant to acknowledge our own hardships because we tell ourselves others have it so much worse than we do. We tell ourselves to get it together and push through even though doing so is often a one-way ticket to burnout and compassion fatigue that can push us deeper into shame and intensify feelings of isolation. But through self-awareness, self-compassion, and sharing our stories, we don't just break through the isolation and shame. We begin to build bridges of connection and empathy that have the capacity to heal and foster a sense of unity during times of crisis and adversity. This is just some of what my guest, Dr. Yvonne Ator, and I talk about today as we explore part five of my book, Tell Me My Story, Challenging the Narrative of Service Before Self. Yvonne is the founder of Thriving Physicians and Thriving Idealist, and describes herself as a sheepdog for sheepdogs, who equips helpers and leaders struggling with overwhelm, overwork, or feeling stuck by providing them with tools and resources to master themselves so they can live authentically and serve to their fullest potential. After losing her comatose father during a physician strike and finding herself homeless, divorced, and financially destitute, as well as her own experiences with compassion fatigue and burnout in the medical sector, Yvonne became an advocate for physician wellness, courageous service and leadership, suicide prevention, and creating more wholehearted cultures in the workplace. She is co-author of the book, Thinking About Quitting Medicine, And her story is featured in the best-selling personal development books Sparked by Jonathan Fields and I Quit by Kunur Bihal. To give you some context for our conversation, here's the opening section of part five of Tell Me My Story, which talks about sharing our stories to cultivate empathy, connection, and healing. Sharing. Sharing is the culmination of the story-healing cycle, The point at which we've moved through the journey of shaping, surviving, seeing, and shifting. It's only once we recognize and address the experiences that created our stories and led to our patterns that we can make new choices that will better serve us the next time we encounter a similar event or experience. Sharing is the point in the story healing cycle when we begin healing the brokenness within us and moving toward becoming whole. Sharing our stories with others fosters empathy and fulfills a primal human need for connection. It helps us experience a sense of common humanity and reminds us that we're not alone in our suffering. The vulnerability we experience through sharing empowers us to write a better narrative, not only for ourselves, but for those we serve and lead. In our conversation today, you'll hear about how Yvonne and I are both working to create daring, wholehearted cultures based in empathy and connection. What I found most interesting was how much of our stories overlapped. Our stories about growing up as third culture kids mirrored one another, and how seeing and experiencing hardship and poverty at a young age shaped our perspectives and pushed us towards our respective paths of service. We dive deeper into what it means to share our stories in workplaces that are experiencing organizational trauma, And explore how leaders can create the conditions for workspaces to be brave spaces, where stories can be shared, even when they create discomfort and may not reflect your own experiences. We also talk about how sharing our stories helps to remove the stigma associated with occupational traumas like compassion fatigue and moral injury. I hope as you listen to our conversation, you feel the passion that Yvonne and I share for helping the helpers. I'm Dimple Dabalia. And this is part five of a story about service without sacrifice. Yvonne, thank you so much for being here today and for talking with me about part five of my new book, Tell Me My Story, Challenging the Narrative of Service Before Self. This is the part of the book that focuses on healing through sharing our stories. So last week, we talked about shifting our stories. So what it means to finally get to that point where we start making new choices breaking old patterns. And what I appreciate is that you and I both know through our work that sharing our stories with others really fosters empathy and fulfills kind of this primal human need we have for connection. And it really helps us to experience a sense of common humanity and reminds us that we all end up going through hardships and challenges and that we're not alone in that suffering. Or for that matter, we're not alone in our joy. Yeah. So welcome. And I'm curious, what came up for you as you moved through this section of the book?
1: Thank you so much for having me on your podcast and congratulations on your book. Very exciting. Thank you. Yeah. I just really appreciate that you had the sharing as part of the healing and that this is a part where we really get healing. And I really loved the idea as I was reading the book of sharing your story, being a source of empathy where people feel less alone and you have that sense of common humanity. So that was a big one for me because when we share our stories, the thing is when we're going through stuff, whether it's burnout or moral injury or compassion fatigue or the vicarious trauma you were talking about, or in your experiences, you can get stuck in your head like, am I the only one? And the thing about shame is it's very isolating. You feel like you're the only one. I always say it feels like I'm some creature that just fell out of a spaceship and, you know, I have a horn on my forehead. (laughs) You're as random and as, like, different as it gets. And the thing about sharing your stories is that you get to realize that, oh, I'm not alone in this. And you mentioned empathy, and you also mentioned common humanity. Common humanity is actually also a part of self-compassion, one of the Mm -hmm. three parts of self-compassion mentioned by Kristin Neff, right? Mindfulness, common humanity and kindness, -kindness. self-kindness. So not only when you share your story, are you able to access empathy from others where it's like, you're not alone. You're in this with other people. Other people have had the same human experience, but it helps you now like practice that. When you have that mirror, that sense of mirroring where people are like, oh yeah, not the only one. It gives you permission and an avenue of self-compassion where you can now be, kind to yourself and what you're thinking, saying and doing and really directing that compassion towards yourself. And I mentioned that because a lot of times when those of us who have committed to be of service to others and we have this sense of, you mentioned perfectionism in your book and all the things you talked about in terms of fight or flight or freeze and fix and I'm forgetting one of them. It was fake. Yeah. Fake. Yes. Fake. Right. We're doing all of that to kind of maintain and manage ourselves. It's like we're in that state. And when you have that self-compassion, you're able to shift out of that and be kind and gentle to yourself and to know that you're not alone. So I really like the idea of the humanitarian not beating themselves up in their fixing and their faking and all of that stuff that's so hard on us, even though we're in that sense state of survival, but being able to shift into that caring for yourself the way you care for the people that you're serving, being able to direct that compassion that you have so much capacity for others, being able to direct that to yourself. That was what was really coming up for me as I was reading that part of your book. Thank you. Yeah, the compassion piece is so fascinating
0: because as people who work in service of others, we do our best to show as much compassion as we can. And What I learned through my experiences was that if you don't take care of yourself and you don't give yourself that time to practice self-care, to rest, do all the things, you and I both work a lot with compassion fatigue and this idea that we get to the point where we just have nothing left to give anybody else. And when that happens, to your point, that inner critic we have, the inner voice that we have gets very loud. Very loud it's always happy to share with us all the things that we're failing at, all the things we're doing wrong. And so what I love about this idea of intentionally practicing self-compassion is the more that we start to be gentle with ourselves and recognize, again, our humanity, meaning that we are going to make mistakes. We're going to have things drop. We're not going to be able to do everything. And the more we can do that for ourselves, the easier it becomes to do it for others. And it becomes a more natural extension of ourselves. And so that piece of self-compassion is so important. And to the point of shifting, we talked about this last week that when we first get to that point of cultivating the awareness of our patterns and our reactions, like our survival reactions, and we make that choice that, oh, you know, I want to do something different. I want to break this pattern. I want to make a new choice. We will inevitably backslide. (laughs) We will inevitably... Go back into, even now as I'm in this book process, I find myself going back into those old comfortable patterns of, oh, let me just work until I get this done. Let me just, you know. Yeah. And I can feel it in my body now. I'm much more in tune right away to notice what's coming up and my body saying, no, I think we're not going to do that. But it just goes to show like even those of us who do this work and have done this work for a while, how easy it is to fall back into those patterns. And so in those moments, that self-compassion is so important.
1: I'm so glad you brought that up because I always tell my clients, like the people you serve, mission-driven, heart-centered, idealists, I call them the idealists, but it's not a one and done. And I find myself saying it so many times, it's not a one and done. And I find myself quoting a lot, fall down seven times, rise up eight. It's a practice, like you have to commit to the practice, which means some days you're going to be quote unquote amazing, yeah, and just checking all the things. And some days it's just like, I don't have it. And can we extend that sense of self-compassion to ourselves when we're doing all the adulting and getting it all done versus when like the dishes haven't been done for several days or like you've watched one too many, for me it's K-dramas, but one too many (laughs) shows, but being able to still practice that self-compassion so you can have the bandwidth to come back to the practice.
0: Yeah, and this idea of the practice, I love that. I'm glad you mentioned that because it is, it's an ongoing thing. It's definitely not a one and done. Yeah. And also, I also love the K-dramas. so <laughs> We're going to have to talk about that at some point. <laughs> yes. The other part of your story that I just found so interesting is I think we have a similarity in terms of coming from immigrant backgrounds. So children of immigrants and we've lived and worked overseas, things like that. And so I was really curious about how your own stories of being an immigrant and the child of an immigrant impacted your decision to go into a helping profession and even just like your whole kind of medical career, things like that. So I was just really curious about that because one of the things that I kind of highlight throughout the book is how We have those shaping stories, those things in our lives that shape who we are and maybe even lead us into these careers without necessarily realizing. So I'm curious for you how that came about.
1: Yeah, it's funny. I was reading a book and I was like, wow, we have a lot in common. We're both third culture adults. There's a whole phenomenon called third culture kids and you become an adult. But basically, your parents grew up in one culture, you grew up in another, but you don't feel like you're. Completely one or the other, you're kind of Mm -hmm. between worlds. And at the same time, you feel comfortable with both. And you also have your own personal culture. So the idea of the third culture adult is a big theme in my life. And it's been really helpful for me to navigate the spaces I'm in. But I I was born in the UK and my family, and I saw that you went to Oxford. Mm -hmm. I think I saw that. I was like, oh, (laughs) cool. That's a big deal, by the way. (laughs) So I was born in the UK and then I partly grew up in Nigeria and the States. So shaping for sure I think moving from the UK to Nigeria and seeing people dying from preventable diseases just blew my mind coming from a place where you have universal for the most part universal health care to a place where it's like if you have money you get health care if you don't you don't yeah and that's very close to how India has their own health system as well so lots of similarities between Africa and Asia I remember babysitting this kid who like ended up dying from like it was like a common cold, as far as I know, mm-hmm. losing a cousin to pneumonia, just these things that could have been preventable with access to some antibiotics. And so I think from that early age, and you talk a lot about mental health and seeing a lot of people who looking back were probably like schizophrenic, walking the streets naked. Mm-hmm. It was not unusual to see someone covered in dirt, completely naked, wandering the streets. There was this particular guy was always wandering, hair matted, dirty, always wandering the streets, complete, when I say completely naked, completely naked. And just seeing that as a kid just made me feel a lot of compassion. As a kid, I was a very sensitive kid and seeing people dying from preventable diseases, but also seeing the very rich. Like my family was not poor. We were, I would say, like upper middle class, but just seeing the difference. We had servants. During our rich times, and it's not unusual for like those who are well to do to have servants and maids and all of that, and that's just normal. And then you have people who are super poor who are barely eating. So I was very sensitive to that as a kid. The kids I played with in the streets, I was very aware of who had tattered clothing, who didn't, and I always gravitated actually to those kids. I just felt something about I don't know because I think when you grow up in certain situations, you're supposed to like stick with your quote unquote class. And I think you have that in India as well. But I think seeing the disparities, the health disparities, the social disparities, and really wanting to connect with people from different backgrounds, that definitely, even as a kid, I was very aware. And seeing the Caucasians who were coming on mission trips, and I just, from a very young age, wanted to be a humanitarian. I knew that. I didn't know how it was going to happen. I thought I was going to be a doctor. But I knew very much that I wanted to do something about what I was seeing, like where I wanted everyone to have access to healthcare and all of that. So that definitely coming to the States. I mean, during my time in Nigeria, I was in the gifted children's program. In most countries, I think in the developing world, if you're smart or gifted, you're automatically gonna be in one of five things. It's medicine, law, <laughs> engineering, engineering, <laughs> architecture, and accountants right those are the big five and so if you're not you know (laughs) if you want to be anything and i'm super creative and musical yep (laughs) that never entered my consciousness to like dance and music or my thing yeah and that never entered my consciousness as an option because i was smart so i'm good at math i'm good at science even though i'm good at all these other things yeah so coming to the States and immediately like pre-med, med med school, blah, blah, blah. And I knew I wanted to be a humanitarian. Oprah was my jam. Albert Schweitzer was my jam. So those two were like my beacons. And so that's what I wanted to be. But definitely shaped by what I saw as a kid, moving from London to Nigeria and then moving back to London and then moving to the States. Moving to the States was just
0: such a culture shock.
1: Because then I'm thinking racism and like, things I'd never really thought about before, like I did here in the States. And all of those definitely shaped my decision to go into medicine. I just wanted to change the world, really. I wanted to change the world and make a positive impact. And medicine seemed like the most logical way to do it because I'm super heart-centered and gushy, ooey-gooey kind of person. So that was the only avenue that made sense to me other than like accounting.
0: I love that. And So much of your story, I feel like my story is mirrored in that as well. I was always drawn also in the same way that I just felt the people I was seeing when I would go, when we would visit India, the people I'd see out on the roads and especially the class and the caste system in India is so strong in a lot of ways and really influences how people behave, how they interact with each other, all those things. And It always bothered me so much. And it was actually what I ended up writing my senior thesis about was the impact of the caste system. It's very interesting to me that even though I was encountering these things, like it didn't really become clear to me how these things were influencing my decision or my desire to be of service until much later in life when I finally started putting those pieces together, because I think this is part of it. We move through life kind of on autopilot doing our thing and we don't put those pieces together, but it's important. It's important that we start putting them together because we have to understand where these, the root of our decision-making and our choices in order to be able to change them and shift them, especially for women of color like us. There's so many things that we've been conditioned to believe. Yeah. And I think women in general, in a lot of ways, and then definitely people in these sectors, these helping sectors. (laughs) And that's where like this concept of service before self is something I think many of us are taught from a very young age. Yeah. That you serve others. I think that's very noble and we have to be able to think in that way to an extent. But I think this is where we're at a really interesting place now. I talk about this a lot with the pandemic. I think the pandemic was a very interesting experience. It was terrible and it caused so much grief and pain and hardship. And it also provided opportunities for people to slow down and to pause and to kind of really think about what's really important in this lifetime. And especially when it came to work what am I doing? Why am I showing up to do this? And is this really what I want to be doing? Am I making the difference that I want to make? And so I think all of these things, we can't change them until we start to
1: understand what it is that has gotten us to this point. I always talk about 2020 being the year of perfect vision because you have 2020 vision. And I'm like, it brought so much clarity. There were certain things that we had to face, we had to see that we could not unsee and certain things that we had to unlearn. The whole pandemic was such a clarifying, detoxifying, purifying, (laughs) you're in the fire, like whatever doesn't belong is just being burnt away and just stripped away. And that's what it felt like to me. Yeah, You really had to look at the core of who you were, the systems you were in, the people you're around, there was just no room for like self-delusion anymore. It was just, here is life, here is the world. And what are you going to do about it? That's such a great,
0: great way of looking at it. And as you were saying that, I'm just reminded of that image of the Phoenix rising from the ashes. I feel like a lot of us kind of started to rise after that. Yeah. As you know, I talk a lot in the book we're talking about part 5 which is about sharing our stories and i talk about this idea of story healing and sharing our stories but one of the things that i think a lot of organizations sometimes struggle with is we go to work because it's work and there's work that needs to be done and so how do we balance that against the needs of like the humanity within the workforce i'm curious do you do any kind of story sharing in the work that you do with organizations? What kind of reaction do you often get? And how do you kind of navigate
1: through that? I do a lot of story sharing in my work because people want to hear my story, number one, and it's compelling. With organizations, Uh, Especially with the kind of work I do where I'm trying to transform the culture to make it more daring, more wholehearted, more courageous so that my people that I feel called to serve, the idealists, the helpers, those heart-centered, mission-driven people are able to thrive in those spaces. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I'm thinking about coming in. That's my mission. Now, those spaces usually are super what we call armored, which is there's a lot of self-protection going on. There's A lot of the cultures are driven by shame, not enoughness, and your productivity is your self-worth. Coming in already, there's like a lot of armor. There's a lot of feelings of unsafety and things like that. So before I even share stories, I like to set containers mm-hmm. where it is okay to share your story. First, by like creating that container, you know, what's okay, what's not okay. Really setting some good boundaries So people know that it's safe to share and then me modeling it by going first and kind of putting myself out there (laughs) Mm -hmm. with my kind of story and background I come from, like it really can be very raw and putting myself out there, but making sure that the container is set first. And that's really important. And the reason I say that is because of the second question that came up for me as I was reading a book is when we say, yeah, share your story, share your story. That's great. But in these armored spaces where, again, people are kind of protecting themselves and don't feel safe, who gets to share their story is a question we need to ask ourselves as we're asking people to share their stories. I facilitate a lot of Brene Brown's work. So it's all about vulnerability and courage and all of that. And I'm also, I don't ever think of myself like this, but I always have to remember that I'm a Black woman. And. Yes, I'm outside of the system so I can come in and share my story. But is it safe for the other Black people in the organization to share their story? Is the organization a safe space for them to share their stories? And those are the things I have to think about. And an example that's coming up for me is when I did a workshop for, I think it was a school. And I did a workshop for the teachers. And it was like a really like amazing school. I think it was private. And so the kids, the families came from money. But well, the teachers were from all over. And I remember when I was doing the workshop and talking about sharing stories and all of that, and I put people in their Zoom rooms the breakout rooms, and as I was going from room to room, I got in this room, and there was an African-American guy and a white guy, and this was during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And the white African-American guy started sharing his story about his experience at the institution, and people had no idea. And... There was some white fragility happening in there and was like, OK, being able to can you sit with the discomfort of hearing a story that might not reflect your own experience in the organization because you're a white person and you're a white male and you have this amazing experience. But somebody else in the next cubicle to you is having a terrible experience, but is not talking about it. But because I created a container of safety, they're able to now share. How do you sit with that discomfort? So these are the things that need to be addressed when we're inviting people to share their stories. Yeah. What are the boundaries around this container? What is this container we're holding? And how long will this container be for? And if you're wanting the organization to be a place where people feel safe sharing their stories, what's in place to make sure people are okay after they've shared their stories? Or does the Black woman get labeled the angry Black woman because she's shared her story? Yeah. Depending on your race, some people get celebrated for sharing their stories and saying, wow, great job. And then some other people get vilified for sharing their story. So as facilitators coming in and as coaches coming in, we have to be aware of the culture that's in place at the organization, even as we're coming in to transform it and make it wholehearted and a place where they can thrive We constantly have to be on the lookout so that our people are safe, not just when we're there doing the thing, but also when we leave. Yeah.
0: Oh, my gosh. So much good stuff that you just said. So two things coming up for me as you're saying this. Number one is the container building is absolutely foundational. It's so important. And in my work, I talk a lot. I use the term brave spaces. It's a term that's been out there for a really long time. And I really like it because I think it acknowledges a lot of what you're saying here, which is just this idea that these spaces aren't safe for a lot of people. And so when we create the brave space, we come into it with the acknowledgement that we are human. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to say the wrong thing. We might do the wrong thing. And then can we own that we made that mistake or we said the wrong thing? And can we, like you said, sit with it and then also, do the work to repair it and repair the hurt. So part of this is in these spaces, doing the repair work as well. And the other piece though, that keeps coming up for me, I think there are elements of story sharing that can be done by leaders in the organization, like on teams and things where it's like more low stakes, just these opportunities to get to know each other on a more human to human level. But I think for some of these things and what you're referring to, for me really goes to more at the heart of like organizational trauma i've talked about this a lot that we all come with our own individual traumas and then there's all the occupational traumas like the vicarious the moral injury the compassion fatigue all these things but i think what people often forget or don't realize is that our systems are also susceptible to trauma And it makes sense because our systems are created by individuals and individuals are bringing their own lens to all of this. And so for these kind of story sharing and story healing discussions that go to resolving root issues within the organization, I think it's so important to have those bigger conversations and to create those containers and to really help people understand that While there's a lot of commonalities within our stories that help to connect us, we all have very different experiences. And this is also why someone like me could go overseas to interview refugees and be on a trip with another colleague. And I am experiencing vicarious trauma and they're not having any issues, right? Because we've had two very different experiences. Yeah, yeah. And I think this is what makes it so complex for organizations. And I think this is why a lot of organizations don't want to deal with any of this
1: because it is... Too much work, investments.
0: Yeah, that's right, right? Like it is an investment. It's an investment of time. It's an investment of resources. And it's
1: an investment in the long term. An emotional labor. You mentioned time and the resources and the money, but also the emotional labor of it. It can be terrifying to have to do this kind of work in organizational settings. And there's a lot of hesitation towards that because of that emotional labor as well. So being able to develop the capacity to be able to do that emotional labor is also one.
0: Yeah, that's a big one. And I just want to shift a little bit and talk about, especially because you work with a lot of medical professionals and helpers in the medical community. I recently did a workshop for the palliative care community on the topic of moral injury. And I think this is another area that I think in the medical context, it's starting to gain a little bit more traction now that more people are talking about it. But it's still another one where I think this is a space where story healing could be very beneficial, these kinds of story healing circles in addressing moral injury. And so for people who don't know, moral injury is... Where you are having to either do work or make choices that really are in conflict with your own kind of personally deeply held moral beliefs and values. And when you think about it through COVID, we saw this a lot in the medical communities where people were having to make choices that didn't feel great and really was impacting them mentally. And then over time, that mental impact really starts to impact all the other parts of our health and well-being, right? Like our physical health, our relationships, all of that. Just curious, how does moral injury show up in your work or like in the work that you're doing? And have you been using kind of story to work with that?
1: Moral injury is big in medicine because medicine is supposed to be like a mission-driven, heart-centered profession. Unfortunately, Because of the corporatization of healthcare and medicine, you have a set of values that are driving medicine that are very different from the set of values that brought people into the profession, right? A lot of people like me coming from the kind of background we come from, we want to change the world by helping people, by thinking about going into healthcare, thinking about like spending time with a patient and like hearing their story and like taking care of them and really being involved, And then you have this corporatization, which then is like, you know what? Those values are great, but the most important value right now is profit. And so let's slash the amount of time you're spending with your patients. Let's slash your sense of competency in terms of the treatment you know will be beneficial for the patient or the medication you know will be beneficial for the patient. And let's just go based on what's cheap or what makes us the most money. And so you have this direct clash. And it's becoming like right now we're almost at a breaking point. And you know I've been talking about strikes in healthcare for like a while now, but we're at this breaking point right now in medicine where something has to give because now you have things like programs being cut out or people being cut just for the bottom line. You have this situation where a lot of spaces are understaffed just so they can boost the bottom line. And so then you have more people going into burnout. And so more people making decisions are completely out of alignment with their values in order to keep up with the increasing demands for productivity and profit and all of that. So most of the time when people come to me, they're in that moral injury already. And most times it's moral injury. They come to me thinking they're in burnout, but most times they're in moral injury. Yeah, exactly. And so that storytelling, the narrative medicine and all of that is really important. To help people see that they're not alone in this. Because most times people are in their own worlds. They're just trying to keep head above water. They're seeing as many patients as possible. And they have no idea. Unless they're sharing their stories with others, they have no idea what's going on with someone else. Everybody else looks like they're able to handle it. That's how I felt when I was practicing. It seems like everybody else is cool until somebody is reported as having died by suicide. Most times you don't know something has happened or something is not okay until somebody dies. Yeah. I am, as a coach, seeing more and more of that. I'm finding myself sharing stories of one client in one health system to another, and not, again, of course, confidential, but say, you're really not the only one. Here's what's happening in this state, in this healthcare system. Mm-hmm. 700 jobs just got slashed, and people are having to pick up the slack. And they're understaffed, like the same thing is happening here and it's happening there. And so sharing those stories is helping people realize that they're not the only ones. And then they get to decide, in what ways can I come back into alignment with my values? Is it possible for me to do that in this setting or do I have to quit? Mm -hmm. A lot of people are in this position. And unfortunately, because of the liabilities, because of the really armored culture and medicine you're not really hearing stories well now it's starting to become a thing people are sharing stories but you're not really hearing as many stories as you could because then you'd realize wow this is widespread I because I'm a coach and I'm hearing stories from Minnesota from Florida I'm hearing and I'm like the same thing is happening oh my god I'm doing my best to share the different stories and giving people a chance to share their stories so that they can know that they're not alone but The moral injury is a big thing in healthcare. It's not being talked about just because people are so scared and are in such distress and in survival mode. Yeah, I agree.
0: I agree. And to add on to what you were saying, because of the isolation in terms of when we go through something like this, I know when I was going through the vicarious trauma that or even the moral injury for a while where we do see everybody else around us pushing through and we think, oh, well, maybe there's something wrong with me. And so there's this added level of like shame sometimes that accompanies this. And I think that this is where speaking these stories out loud really helps with that as well. And to your point about we are in a unique position in the work that we do, because like you said, we see this across so many different organizations and sectors and all that kind of stuff. And that's another reason why I think it's really important to be speaking to these things because the more that we talk about it, the more number one, we are helping to remove the stigma of these things that are showing up in our workplaces. And we're helping to kind of normalize it because again, I keep saying this that being human is messy, serving humanity is messier. <laughs> and
1: so I love that. <laughs> Being a human is messy and serving humanity
0: is messier. That's so true. (laughs) But yeah. And so the more that we are doing this work, we have to acknowledge that it has an impact on the people doing it. And this idea that people can come to work and we can turn off a part of ourselves. I say this all the time. We don't leave a part of ourselves at the door when we come into work. We are whole human beings. But this expectation that we should be able to kind of bifurcate ourselves and come into work and do our work. And it's so challenging to me at this point to like hear people continue to talk about that
1: because it's dehumanizing. It's dehumanizing. Because you're having to operate like a robot, which is yeah. switch this on and switch this off and we're humans. Yeah, yeah. Hey, we're not robots. And so it's dehumanizing to have to switch down. You'd have to numb. And the thing is, if you're numbing this part of yourself, it's going to affect this other part. So it's just dehumanizing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it really is. I have really, really enjoyed this discussion. And I'm just looking at the clock. Like It's amazing how quickly the time goes. But as we kind of move towards closing out, I just want to ask one last question, which is in the container of the Brave space we've created together, What does service without sacrifice or service without self-sacrifice
1: mean to you or look like for you? You can't really have real service if you're sacrificing yourself. That's what that means to me in the sense that to really serve, you would have to serve yourself and serve the others. In order to serve others, you have to be able to serve yourself, make sure you're okay so that you can show up for others. If you're having to sacrifice yourself, There will be no one to serve. There'll be nothing ultimately to give. It's not sustainable. So there cannot be service if you're self-sacrificing. It's not possible, in my opinion. So that's what that means to me. I'm like, that's impossible. Yeah, I love it.
0: Yvonne, thank you so much for taking the time to be here today and for the amazing work that you're doing in the world to help the helpers and to help them heal from trauma and other things so that they can keep serving We'll make sure to include links in the show notes about where people can connect with you. And for all those listening, just a reminder that at the heart of the word humanitarian is human, and we can choose to serve others without sacrificing our own health and well-being and humanity in the process. So until next time, be well, and thank you so much for your service. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Service Without Sacrifice. If we want to put the human back into humanitarian work, we have to get this message in front of as many people as possible. And this, my friends, depends a lot on word of mouth. So if you enjoy these conversations and find them to be valuable, please like, subscribe, and review Service Without Sacrifice on your favorite podcasting platform. And share it with others who might benefit. And producing this show is a labor of love. Your support will help me to continue creating new content and sharing stories of hope, healing, and human-centered leadership for years to come. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber over on Substack, where I'm working to build a community with my newsletter and content hub, Dear Humanitarian. You can find out more about my writing, the book, our online story healing community called The Hummingbird Circle, as well as how to work with me over at rootsintheclouds.com. And I'd like to take a moment here to acknowledge how grateful I am to live, write, work, and record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Doge and Piscataway tribes. And I'd also like to take a moment to thank the team over at One Stone Creative for editing and producing this series. And finally, I'd like to thank you so much for your support. And most of all, thank you for your service.